0: So our text this morning is Genesis chapter 13, it's 1 to 18. We're we're on this journey with Abram and Sarah to somewhere, right? In Genesis 11 and 12, their story begins with God calling them to leave everything that they've ever known. uh, To go somewhere that they've never been. a, A God that they're just really beginning to know. He calls them to leave family and land and country and their, their previous life, uh, and, and all they have to go on is his word. And these promises that he gives them, right? These I wills that we read about in Genesis 12. There are six of those in Genesis 12, these I wills. And within these I wills, there's this, there's this promise to them that, that through them he plans to bless the world. He plans to bless the families of the earth. And we know that blessing to be Jesus. And they're to play this critical heart of all this and they have to step out in faith we can learn a lot from Abram and Sarah Sarai or Abram and Sarah uh, because their world was changing all around them and so is ours our world is changing as it always does but it just seems to be at a little faster clip than perhaps it has been in previous years their world is changing our world is changing and we can learn a lot from them as all we have to go on to is God's word and so I invite you now to step back into Genesis with me to Genesis 13. Let me read our text for us. You can read along in your in the pew Bible if you like, although I'm reading from the ESV and there's a little there's a little difference in there. This is Genesis 12, I mean 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and Sarai and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram and Sarai were very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And they journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where their tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with them, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support all of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, "'Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the, left, uh, the right hand, then I will go to the left.'" And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Oh God, you are good all the time. You do amazing things for us and in us and through us, things that surprise us. And you teach us things from your word. By your spirit, you help us, you lead us, you point us to Jesus. And so this morning I ask as we open up your word, as we look into it, that your spirit would work and stir within our hearts. Draw those of us who are here this morning who don't yet know you in a full and rich way to know you. Those of us who, Lord, have walked with you for a long time, refresh us by your spirit so that we may know Jesus in a deeper way as well. We ask that you do this the powerful and the awesome and the marvelous name of Jesus. Amen. So as I read this um, text several times over the last well, few days in particular, but on the last few weeks, a number of times, there's a word that jumps off the page at me. Can you guess what it is? It's the word strife. Can you guess Why? Is This isn't a word that it's often in my vocabulary. I don't use strife often. You might, but I, I don't use it often. But I know what it is, right? Um, because like you, I experience it often. Of late. Right? Doesn't it feel like it's everywhere? It's mentioned here twice. The first time is in reference to the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. These people are responsible for taking care of what appears to be this massive herd of cattle and sheep and donkey and camels. And as it turns out, Abram and Lot are are now quite wealthy. As we start into Genesis thirteen, their worlds have changed. Right? They were called uh, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. They were called out of Hebron uh, with whatever they had. They left, and and then there's this famine in Canaan, this land that God has promised. And so foolishly. Abram and Sarai and Lot they end up in Egypt and uh, Pharaoh comes and takes uh, Sarai away thinking that she's Abram's sister that puts all the all these promises in jeopardy and God uses Pharaoh to bless Abram and coincidentally probably Lot and so they go back and now they have all of these things this blessing that God has given them and it's it's a massive herd, apparently, so much so that it's putting pressure on the land to the point where Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, uh, are there's strife among them. At the end of the day, after God rescues them, they have this issue. Some versions of the Bible translate the word strife as quarreling, but for me, that's a bit too polite. I, uh, when I was uh, in college, I worked on a farm, uh, on a cattle farm and tobacco farm. Uh, and so I can't quite imagine the men that I worked with on that farm quarreling. <laughs> I can imagine them uh, in, in strife. I actually don't have to imagine. I've witnessed it, right? And over really significant things. These weren't insignificant things that they were arguing about. And, and neither was it for Abram and Lot's the herdsmen. It wasn't. Because as the herd goes, so go the people. If the herd dies, the people die. This is a significant thing. And that's the essence of of what it, of this idea, this word of strife, it's it means this this angry dispute, this bitter disagreement. Uh, it's kind of on the cusp of even violence, right? It's there. There's this heat to it and this tension more than the word quarrel. That sounds too British to me to be anything other than too polite. Sorry, but I do like the British. But they're arguing over. Fundamental issues, important, significant issues. An angry dispute, a bitter disagreement over fundamental issues or something important. Abrams, Herdsman, lots, Herdsman, they're doing that. That word left off the page at me because it seems to define the world that we live in. We seem to be living in a time and an age that the world around us is a strife-torn world. And it's filtering down to our communities in our neighborhoods, it's all around us. We could write a dissertation on why, right? I bet lots of them will be written over time, uh, about why this this time feels like a strife-torn era. Um, In Genesis, the root cause of it is this massive change, right? Between uh, Abram's herds and Lot's herds, like there's this, it's good, right? They have a good problem, but nevertheless, it's a problem. There's change, and sometimes change brings about strife. It's just the nature of things because change happens to do that to us. It makes us uncomfortable. It unsettles us. Even when change kind of adds to more change, they, they have to change the way that they do things. The herd has grown. Now they have bigger problems. They probably have to work more. There's more concern about where they're going to graze in the water, right? This, it's, it's, it's a blessing, but yet at the same time, it's big. And maybe God will use it to separate them because that's what needed to happen all along, this sort of sense of separation. Because God did call Abram to leave Kindred, and Lot is his nephew. Maybe God's at work here. Nevertheless, there's strife between these two folks. I think this word strife may actually define the last few years in our culture. Maybe even the last few weeks. Over the weekend, I kept uh, reading articles in the paper about um, the, the governor of Virginia and this tussle with the leadership of Fairfax County, where several uh, Supreme Court justices live, uh, and he wants uh, them to, to, to put more security around their neighborhoods because people are beginning to protest in the Supreme Court justices' neighborhoods, right? Uh, but Fairfax County just said, you should mind your own business. We got it covered. So there's this, this strife there, this bitter dispute over something that's, that's important, right? And then over the weekend, there was lots of people who went to Washington, D.C. There's strife there, this disagreement, this angry dispute over fundamental issues, right? The, it's there. In my own community, in, in Bristol, Tennessee, there's people every Saturday, every Saturday for over a year that have gathered on the state line, on the Tennessee side of the state line. If you've never been to Bristol, it's Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia. We share a state line. There's people who are protesting every week, lots of angry disputes because of a landfill issue that's creating this, this noxious odor that's causing people to have health issues. Uh, there's, there's the potential for environmental disaster, all these kinds of things. And so there's this angry dispute, and, uh, and it's there, right? Um, there there was this COVID thing, right? <laughs> and angry disputes over masks and, and vaccines and uh, mandates. And there have been angry disputes and bitter disagreements over Black Lives Matter, over issues regarding race, around George Floyd, about sexuality. These aren't quarrels. These are angry disputes, bitter disagreements that... Um, hinge on the point of violence, and sometimes it bubbles over. And even as I bring all this up, I run a risk, right, um, because people feel very strongly about these issues, as they should. I know people in this church feel strongly about fundamental issues, and I'm not suggesting that Black Knoll is a place of strife. I'm simply stating the obvious, that we feel strongly about those things. and we are living in a strife-torn world, And Christian folks are just as prone to get drawn into them as anyone else. But let me say quickly that I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to push buttons. I'm not trying to stir anything up or taking sides. I'm not judging or pointing my finger because it's the soup I swim in as well. And I am deeply concerned about um, our world, about our communities. I am convinced, though, I am convinced that the greatest way that we can make Jesus known in Durham or in Bristol or anywhere else or all over the place is for the church to become this and to maintain and do the hard work of being this strife-free zone so that we can do what Psalm 30, 133 says, that we are brothers and sisters who dwell in unity and we can fulfill that prayer of the Lord Jesus that I read at the beginning, that we are one. I'm not suggesting that the church become a place of conformity, though, where you check your concerns uh, or, as Cullen said, we're just nice to each other. But rather, it's a place where strife isn't allowed in because we have this shared commitment to Jesus, um, a shared commitment to one another. And we want to do the hard work of figuring out how it is that we live out a law of love toward one another, um, even when we don't necessarily agree on these fundamental issues where we have disagreement. And so as I read uh, our text in Genesis 13, and I come across this word strife, it strikes me because it's all around us. It's all around us. You can't turn the news on without hearing about it. You can't go places without dealing with it. These anger disputes and bitter disagreements, and they pose a serious threat to our community. And people are exhausted by it our neighbors and their families, our friends. And so I think the world truly needs this significant witness that really can only happen here in the church. This significant witness where we are a place where we understand the significance and the threat of strife, and yet we want to be a place where we work through those issues together because it's a great testimony to the power of the gospel because that's what unifies We all know that strife will tear families apart, and communities, and schools, and businesses, and churches. We all have our stories, which is why it's so important then when people, God's people, live in this unity with one another. But it takes a lot of work. The world is fairly used to strife. We're not surprised by the stories when it tears things apart. Unfortunately, we're not surprised by it at all. We're heartbroken by it, but we know it's there. It's used to it. And we feel this pressure, I think. I think a lot of people feel this pressure to pick a side. It makes it difficult then, if not impossible, for us to be in relationship with one another when we do those sorts of things, when strife is allowed to win out. It's hard work. It's a tough challenge for the church to be that sort of place. But it's good work. It's worth the hard work for a church to do that. But we need help to understand how the gospel then informs it. Because that's what unites us. And I want to stop right here and let you know that you all have a legacy of being a church that's been able to hold these these things in tension. You have this legacy, this rich legacy of being a church where people can be in this room together, worship together, be in fellowship with one another And you don't necessarily agree on every issue. But what you do agree on is the gospel. What you are committed to is the person of Jesus. You are committed to figuring out the law of love, how to love one another and love your neighbors. And you've done a great job of it. And in no way is this text meant to be a a cudgel, but rather an encouragement. One of those sort of uh, mid-game, halftime pep talks to remind you uh, about and encourage you about this call that you have as a church. Black Knoll Memorial Presbyterian Church is an incredibly significant and important church in the kingdom because not every church can do what you're doing and it's hard, but God invites you and calls you into it because you're living in a community that is surrounded by strife and you have this great opportunity to bear witness to the power of the gospel in a way that the world really needs to hear and see and experience to sit in this tension. And Genesis 13 helps us. It teaches us a few things. So the second time strife is mentioned in this text in Genesis 13, it really caught my attention because it's Abram, right? He's a surprising person. Uh, He's a mess. We found that out in Genesis 13. He doesn't get this right at all. And yet he does here in chapter 13. I think he and Sarai must have learned some things between going to Egypt and nearly like losing everything and being in, back in, in Cana and having this great problem of too many animals, right? And so in Genesis 13, verse 8, Abram calls for an end to strife. He calls for an end to these angry disputes, these bitter arguments that, are, that have the, the capacity to tear apart the relationship between Abram and Lot which is a significant thing. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want there to be strife between himself and Lot because they're family. I mean, literally, it's his nephew. And that's what he says. He knows that this strife could actually sever this relationship forever. And apparently he doesn't want that. And so he appeals to him in verse 8, and he says, let there be no strife, no angry disputes, no, no bitter disagreements between you and me, between your husband and my husband, because we're kinsmen. We're brothers. I'm your uncle. It's a pretty powerful thing, and right or wrong, right? Because Abram was called to leave everything behind. He was called to leave his kindred behind, but he took Lot with him or allowed him to go for whatever reason. God continued to bless him even though he probably wasn't perfectly doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And maybe this is the moment that God wants them to separate, but nevertheless, he doesn't want this this separation to, to be this bitter one. He wants there to continue to be a relationship even though they're, they can't be together anymore, right? It's a serious problem that they have, that they have to deal with. But he says the first way that this idea of end this strife or avoid this strife or be a strife-free zone, if you want to call it, is this remembrance that we're in relationship with one another. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. I have friends in Alabama, uh, Baptist friends. You can't throw a rock in Alabama without hitting a Baptist? Really, it's true. Um, I love talking with those guys, right? Because they call me Brother Mark, right? And it's awesome because uh, I'm Presbyterian and they're Southern Baptist, and I'm in the PCUSA, and they're Southern Baptist, right? <laughs> And we're we're brothers. We have these difference theologically, maybe, and even doctrinally, but we're brothers. It's powerful. It really is. And they have good barbecue. <laughs> but that is something that we, that we throw around in the church. The Bible uses that language all the time, this familial language. Why does it do that? Because it's one of those things that holds us together. The psalm that we, that we read a few moments ago, how, how good it is and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It uses the language, that familial language. Why does it do that? Because it helps us. It reminds us that because of this, this shared relationship that we have with Jesus... That because because of him, we are brothers, we are sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters, heirs and co-heirs. That's a significant thing. And so in this moment when there's strife sort of entering in, Abram is reminded and reminds Lot, let's not have this. We're we're family, we're kinsmen. It helps. And in broad general ways, Abram shows that living in unity, living at peace, moving away from strife, though, it, it isn't easy, right? It it costs, it has a cost to it. There is a cost to maintaining this relationship, and it cost Abram and Sarah. When the psalmist says it is good and pleasant, I don't think they're overlooking the fact that it's difficult. When Jesus prays that we would be one, I don't think that he thinks it's easy. It's he's, he knows us. It's hard work, and it requires sort of this willingness to, well, to, to sacrifice. That's what Abram does here. This is a miracle to me, to go from chapter 12 to 13 to deceive what Abram does from 12 to 13. It's stunning. Because he he doesn't get it right before, but now he gets 13 right. He really does. And what he does, in Genesis 13, 8 and 9, he says, let there be no strife because we're family. And then he says, look, take a look at the whole land. He says this to Lot. Take a look at the whole land. Take what you want. You, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He didn't have to do that. He's the patriarch. He could have told him to hit the bricks. Right? He had the right. I had the right. But he recognizes and values this relationship with Lot more. And he knows that they're going to have to separate. He knows that. In order, because this issue is a real issue. And they're going to have to separate in order to survive. And so it's going to cost him. And he lets it. It's risky. And it cost Abram and Sarah because because Lot is selfish. And he's a fool. He is drawn to this plush Jordan Valley because of the way it looks. And he's drawn to Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though we know that it's wicked, he still is drawn to that. And he doesn't think about Abram and Sarai at all. The Bible tells us that he chooses for himself himself. He's sort of selfish in that. It costs Abram and Sarah. They don't, they don't get the best land, right? There's a risk involved there for him to be magnanimous. One theologian calls Abram magnanimous, and I think that's great. I'm going to start using that word a lot, magnanimous. Mark the magnanimous. There we go. <laughs> Why would they do that? How could they do that? How could Abram and Sarah and, this, and Sarai in this moment be magnanimous? The text tells us they were able to do that because somehow, some way, they'd learned some things about God, that God keeps his promises, and they trusted in his promises. And that's it. All they had to go on was God's word. In Genesis 12, we have these six I wills. Remember, I will give you, make you your name great. I will give you a land. I will make you a nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. In Genesis 13, he adds three more, three more I wills. And somehow or another, Abram and Sarai, after this experience, they believe, you know what? God's going to do this. One writer said that those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous. Abram was left with less fertile land, but also with the reassurance from the Lord that it would all be his. What do you do with the promises of God? in the midst of strife, in these moments when it doesn't take much to push things over the edge, right? Abram and Sarai trusted what the Lord said was true, that his promises were as good as done. And so in Genesis 13, 14 to 18, God reiterates his promise to Abram and Sarai. And after Lot leaves and goes to Sodom, God basically affirms his I wills to him, right? I'm going to do this. The Lord says, I will give you to you and your offspring forever. All these things. And the result is that Abram worships the Lord and he draws closer to God. He was able to be magnanimous in this moment, even though it was going to cost him because he trusted in God's promises. He calls for an end to strife with, with Lot because they're family. And he moves in magnanimity, even though he's fully aware that it could cost him that a lot's going to take advantage of him. He moves in magnanimity anyway because he trusts in God's faithfulness and promises. He doesn't always do that, but he does it here, and there's a lesson for us. I am convinced that the greatest way that we can make Jesus known today is for the church to be this strife-free zone where we move toward one another out of this relationship that we have with each other, this connection because of Jesus, And that we move in magnanimity towards one another. Knowing full well that we don't all agree on all these other issues, but we agree on this thing. We agree on our connection to Jesus and the importance of the gospel. And the importance of knowing Jesus and making him known. And then everything else we can deal with. I think it's critical for the cause of Christ today. Because the world is a strife-torn world. And it needs that witness You all have done it for years, maybe not even fully aware of it, but I want you to be aware of it because the world needs to know that you're willing to sit in the tension, whatever tension that is for the sake of the gospel, in order to be in relationship with one another, in order to show magnanimity with one another, in order to do the hard work that comes with bearing witness to the gospel and the power of the gospel to overcome strife. Again, this isn't a message to wag a finger at you, but yet to encourage you as we continue to navigate a world that's changing rapidly, as society is putting pressure on all kinds of people that here, God's people is a place where we, have, we do this hard work, that we do all that we can to maintain the bond of unity and peace as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we try to live out Christ's prayer that we are one, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, Son, and Spirit, I ask, truly ask that you help us to be known by our unity, by our love for you, by our love for one another, our love for neighbor. Lord, unify our hearts and make us one, Jesus, as you prayed, Send your Spirit to do that. Help us not just to be nice, but to really work through the fundamental issues that create strife. So that we can understand one another and understand how the gospel goes forward in spite of fundamental differences. would help us to do those things. I ask this in the powerful and the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.